0: Good morning. Today we're going to begin a study of the Ten Commandments. Obviously in the Old Testament, uh, there's two places that they're all listed. Exodus 20, which is where we'll be in Deuteronomy 5. Actually the book of Hosea gives a shorthand for the Ten Commandments, but we're going to look at Exodus 20. And we'll start with verse 3 today. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, these are your inspired words. They're inerrant without error. We ask Father that we would not only be familiar with the Ten Commandments, but we would think through the incredible implications applications that we have with your command for this world today. Guide our time, we ask. Allow your word to speak to our hearts. Challenge us. Encourage us. Visit us through your word, by your spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, today you and I are gonna look at God's most famous commands, the 10 Commandments. They were first given to Moses 3,500 years ago in Egypt on Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horab. I think it's a tragedy, an unwise move in our country to remove the 10 Commandments from public society. I think we have suffered immeasurably from that, and we continue to suffer. If you are from the East like I am, you'll see even today many buildings that are a couple hundred years old with etchings of Scripture or the Ten Commandments, and there is still a movement afoot to remove those etchings, those sacred words, And I think we have seen the repercussions of removing God's sacred Ten Commandments. Now, there are plenty of silly commandments, not in Scripture, but in society. Some of them bear the fate of being removed. Let me just share a few of them. I understand that in Racine, in yesteryear, it was against the law to shoot missiles at people marching in a parade. The fact that we have that law tells you the behavior of those in Racine. And Agnes, it was against the law for women to wear red. I suspect it had something to do with the scarlet letter, but Bucky Badger does not approve. He wants the red. And Gary, Indiana, At one time, it was against the law to go to the theater within four hours of eating garlic. But then we got Tic Tacs, and I think all is square and good. In Brainerd, Minnesota, they had a wonderful law. It should still be on the books. All men were required to wear beards. Amen, long live the law. In South Foster, Rhode Island... If you were a dentist and you wrongly pulled a tooth that should not have been pulled, you had to go to the blacksmith and he pulled the same tooth from your mouth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These are silly laws, but the ones we're going to look at in the next few months are not. Today we'll start with the first commandment. You shall have no other God beside me. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, the grammar is wrong. The grammar is startling. Moses is speaking to an audience. And when you speak to an audience and you use the word you, it should not be Luca. It should not be second person singular. It should be second person plural. Y'all speaking to an audience. But God instructed him to put it in second person singular because he's talking to you and you, and he's talking to me. These aren't societal rules that as a whole, we kind of need to get right. These are particular rules given directly to my heart that God commands me, commands you to get right. Now we've all grown up in different traditions. Some have grown up in Catholic traditions, others in Lutheran traditions, others in evangelical traditions, probably impacted by the Reformation. If you look at the 10 Commandments in all three traditions, they're exactly the same verbiage. There is no debate on the verbiage, but how we actually divide them would be slightly different depending on one's tradition. So I'm going to divide them from a reformational standpoint. Some others would treat what I consider to be the first two commands as one command, and then they would divide up the last command into two but we will treat the first commandment this way. It's the command in its entirety that says, thou shall have no other God beside me. Now, if you're familiar with the 10 commandments, they're really given unto us in two sections. There's 10 commandments, but there's two sections. There's the first four that are vertical laws, how we interact with God, the creator, the sustainer. And six horizontal laws, how you and I interact one with another. The order is really important. In a Hebraic or Jewish mindset, what is listed first is preeminent. And what is listed first is how you and I interact with God. And if we get that part right, there's a real good chance that we will get the horizontal, how we interact one with another right as well. And so it begins with this vertical relationship. And that's what today's text is about. Have no other God beside or before me. Just a little moment on those six horizontals. Because if you think about all 10, they kind of summarize what? They summarize the Levitical laws. We have 613 laws in the Torah Hebrew word that means law or the pentateuch the first five books they're summarized by the 10 so 613 is kind of given to us in 10 and then those 613 and the 10 and the rest of the laws in the old testament are summarized by Jesus into two Matthew 22:37 to 40 right he says this Jesus speaking to a lawyer You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it under the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two. So the 10 summarize most of the Old Testament. And then Jesus summarizes all of the Old Testament in two. And think about the two. Love God preeminently, the first four. Love man secondarily like you love yourself. Just a word about that second one. We'll get to it about a month from now. But it doesn't say what we would perhaps like it to say. Most of us would like it to say something like this. Love your neighbor as yourself as long as she votes like you do. Love your neighbor as yourself as long as he agrees with you on masks and vaccinations. Or we can fill in the blank. We all have very, very strong opinions. Some of us are right and some of you are wrong. (laughs) But we are told to love one another as a response for our love for God preeminently, then flows to our love for each other. Today's text, Have No Other God Beside Me is all about idolatry. Let me take a stab at defining idolatry. Idolatry is this, it's a masquerade party where we take the finite and treat it as infinite. We take things like people or objects or ideologies or politics or recreation or icons or false face and we treat it as though it is infinite. God is infinite. Idolatry is replacing God with finite things as though these finite things are infinite. Eternal, which would be the best. Nothing is infinite but God. Infinite means he had no beginning. All we can do is treat things as eternal because everything we treat had a beginning but may not have an end. Idolatry is mixing up the eternal with the infinite. The infinite is God. You, singular, shall have no other gods beside me. Now we read that and we think, wow, God must be awfully fragile, right? Feeling a little threatened, God, a little insecure, that we have nobody in front of you. Feeling just a little bit low there, God, worried about my opinion of you. That's not what's going on in the text. One of God's divine attributes, we would call it an Incommunicable attribute, it's one that we cannot share, is the fact that he is a CIT. CIT essentially means this God alone is the uncaused cause. God caused all of us, he created all of us, he sustains all of us. He was uncreated, he is unsustained. A C-A-T means the following. God has no need that he does not provide for himself. God has no need that he does not provide for himself. God does not need your worship. God does not need my income. God does not need our obedience. He desires these things. He doesn't need Any of them. And if God were insecure, the one who knows all things from eternity past, he wouldn't have created me because he knows that my heart is an idol factory. Your heart is an idol factory. And even though we say that God is first in our life, every time we sin, every sin is a declaration that God is not first in our life. That's what sin is. It's saying, I prefer what I want. I will pursue what I want instead of what God demands. Every sin is idolatry because it's putting us on the throne and taking God off the throne. God is hardly insecure. Knowing what I am like he still created me. Knowing what I am like, he still sustains me. He has no need of anything I can give, but he has a desire. Why does he desire worship? First, because it's right. He alone is worthy of it. But second, it aligns my heart with his heart and he wants that for me. He is such a gracious giving God that he wants his best in me for his glory. It was Douglas McKillen. He was a rancher of yesteryear in Scotland, spent most of his time as a shepherd. He made this statement. He said, no matter what sheep you have, they always want what's on the other side of the fence. That's what sheep are like. They always see a preferred future that's not available to them. And what does Isaiah say of us? We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have idols in our hearts. We're idol factories. We always see something that God has said is not ours, and we pursue after it. What is an idol? It's a masquerade party that takes an icon, a recreation. It takes a person. It takes a faith system that is wrong, an ideology, a politic, It takes what is finite and treats it as though it is infinite. That's what the text is about. I should have no other God beside God before God. Let me mention some idols. Every one that I'm going to mention is morally neutral. There is nothing wrong with any of the items I will mention. It's what we do with them that becomes an idol. So maybe you have a boat. I'm sorry if you do. My parents gave me their boat. Once I realized how expensive it was, I gave it to my daughter in Missouri. Then she moved back here. (laughs) Last winter, she actually put it in my yard. Boats are morally neutral. You can ski with a boat. You can fish with a boat. You can see God's creation with a boat. Nothing wrong with a boat. But if the boat gets in the way of our worship of God, our time with God, our prayer with God, our corporate worship, then the boat has become an idol. A cabin. Nothing wrong with a cabin. Bless you if you have one. But if we allow what God has blessed us with to take us away from our time with the Lord, then we have taken God's morally neutral good gift and made it an idol. A spouse or wanting a spouse or a child or a grandchild. That can be an idol. If if our life is so encapsulated by a person or persons that because of that person or person, we're not spending the time with the Lord. That's idolatry. One of the greatest idols in America today is sports. Many of us love sports. We do. Roll Tide Roll, they won yesterday. Thank you. I knew I'd have one or two. We love sports. But if sports take us away, From our time with the Lord. Or become the priority in our life. We have taken God's good gift. And made it an idol. Money. A house. Careerism. All of these are morally neutral. Totally morally neutral. They can be wonderful gifts from God. As long as we keep them in the right lane. Now as you look at the text. It says have no other God beside me. That could lead to some confusion. Are there other gods out there that are legitimate? No. Actually, there are things that we have turned into gods. Scripture is quite clear. Let me read Isaiah 45. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 says this. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So there aren't other gods. We just take inanimate objects. We take the finite and we make it infinite. And we take what is a good gift often from the Lord, and we relegate it to a spot where it becomes idolatry in our lives. You think of the reformers, they had the five solas. You know some of them. Sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, sola scripturas, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. You remember the last one, soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. That's what the first commandment is calling for. God's glory alone, God's glory above all else. You shall have no other God beside me. That word or phrase beside me literally means in the face of. You shall have no other God in the face of God. So what that's telling us is this. If we can find a place where God isn't, pursue your idol there. That's what the first command says. All you and I need to do is find a place where God is not. And then we have biblical permission to pursue our idols. But of course, God is omnipresent, is he not? Listen to the way uh, David put it in Psalm 139, 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your hand shall guide me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, I go to the dark places, the sinful places. Surely God's spirit isn't around them. And yet the light about me be night, even the darkness. Darkness. Is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. So the phrase beside me really means where the face of God is. Where can we go where the face of God is not? We can't. If we go to heaven, He's there. If we go to Sheol, He's there. If we go on the wings of the dawn, He's there. If we go on the sea, He's there. If we go to the dark places, He's there. In other words, there's no place that God has given me, you, us permission to pursue our idolatry. None. I want to illustrate the first commandment with the life of Solomon. Solomon is about my least favorite character in the Bible. The older I get, the less I like Solomon because he convicts me. Solomon started well and finished poorly. And the older I get, the more I think about finishing well. I believe as parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, we tacitly give our kids, grandkids permission not to be sold out for Jesus when we're not sold out for Jesus. The older we get, the more committed to the Lord, we need to be. The older we get, the more on point, on fire, red hot smoldering for Jesus, we need to be because someone's watching us. They are. They're watching us. Solomon started well. He finished poorly. Well, we know Solomon is the third king of the undivided kingdom of Israel You have Saul and then his father, David, then Solomon. And God comes to Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 5 and gives him the only name it and claim it promise anywhere in scripture. Now we have pastors from time to time that says name it and claim it. And if you accept Jesus Christ, you will have prosperity. You have riches and wealth, health and prosperity. Actually, what Jesus said is take up that cross and follow me. And if you follow me, you will have trouble and tribulation and people will persecute you. That's actually what Jesus said. He didn't say any of this nonsense that you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. None of that is in scripture, except for Solomon. 1 Kings 3, 5, God did come to Solomon and said, name it and claim it. And Solomon started well and he said, what I want is the wisdom to rule over your people well. And God, who knew that that's what he would answer from eternity past, was encouraged by the answer and of course gave him great wisdom, wrote 3,000 Proverbs, kings and queens from all over came to hear him, including the Queen of Sheba. Incredible wisdom, wrote some of the, the, the Psalms, some of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. A, a wise man until he wasn't. And you remember he started well and then he began to fade. We get to 1 Kings 6 and 7. You kind of have to read them together because if you only read one, you don't get the full picture of the other. And so you see early on, he has this idea that he's going to build God a temple. Actually, it wasn't his idea. It was his father David's. And he spends seven years on the temple. And we're really impressed until we read chapter 7. And we're less impressed if we read what precedes it because actually the seven years he built, he didn't have to pay for any of the materials his father David did. He didn't have to collect any of the materials his father David did. All Solomon did really was oversee the building by sending some artisans there. That's really all Solomon did. And then when he gets done with the seven years of building God's temple, he spends 13 years on his own palace. And that costs him dearly. He has to pay for everything. He paid for nothing for the temple. He pays for everything. Seven years for God, of which he really isn't a participant. 13 years in which he's a huge participant. And we start to see the slippage. So the Lord comes to him. Let me read some of what God says to him in First Kings 9, 4-7. to And as for you... If you, Solomon, will walk before me, that is God, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Well, we, don't, we know that didn't work so well, right? His son Rehoboam had the undivided kingdom for like a week, not so good. But if you turn aside from following me and you do not keep my commandments, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel. 605 and 586 BC. They were cut off. 722, the northern tribes. 605, 586, the southern tribes. They don't become a nation again until 1946-7. They were cut off. If you go and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the nations. So Solomon starts well, he begins to fade. And you remember what the first commandment says, you shall have no other God beside me. And then things go from bad to worse. You get to chapter 11 and in verse three, it tells us, that Solomon made a number of alliances. They're military alliances, they're economic alliances. They would go something like this. Solomon would go to a foreign country. He would talk to the king and the queen. He would say, your daughter, beautiful princess, I will marry her, we will have a treaty, we will trade. And he will bring the daughter back to his palace. Now, humanly speaking, that's brilliant, but he wasn't relying on God. It's brilliant because what king or queen is going to attack the palace in Jerusalem, knowing that inside the palace is their daughter. And so he makes a thousand alliances. But these queens don't just come with their bags. They come with their baals. They come with their ashtoreths. They come with their mollocks. In fact, we read the following in verse 5 says this, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. It didn't just happen. It didn't. There's a slow slide. And that's what happens in our lives. We start making compromises. We start cutting out the time of personal worship we start minimizing the time of personal prayer. We find many other activities to attend to rather than corporate worship. We start listening to vi- different voices and, and it's just a slow, almost imperceptible slide and, and we get months later, a year later, two years later and we think, you know, I'm really not that in love with God. God. And we have a hard time admitting that. But if we're honest, we've gone from red hot, white hot embers to, man, they're barely embers at all. That's what happened in Solomon's life. That's idolatry. That's when we take the finite and we treat it as infinite. That's when we allow an ideology or a politic or a recreation or a person or another faith an icon, some other idol to embed itself in our lives and we pursue our sins, which is idolatry. It's taking God off the throne and placing something else on the throne. And if we don't keep short accounts with the Lord, if I don't keep short accounts, immediately confessing, agree with God and in the power of his spirit, turning, repenting for my sin, there becomes this slow slide. We know a lot about the slide of Solomon. He recorded it for us. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is his diary of what he pursued under the sun, without God, this slow slide. And he has the power and the money to do so. So he pursues wine, women, and song, and art, and architecture. He pursues kingdom building, Seeking to be the most powerful, the best known. And he builds up his own kingdom. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. And there's a refrain throughout Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel. It looks like this. Now, we're really big into bubbles in my house. We have them on the back patio. We have them in the living room. How many of you have bubbles in the living room? (laughs) Ray Ray and I, we are all into bubbles. Almost every time she comes over, we're into bubbles. And I blow them and she stomps them. They're smoke screens. They're beautiful until they're not. They're gone. So we're into bubbles. That's Hevel. That's vanity. It's going after the finite as though it's infinite. But it's here for a moment, gone the next. And we pursue this and this and this and it doesn't satisfy ultimately. But scripture says God does. The pursuit of God always satisfies temporarily. The pursuit of God always satisfies eternally. And so we are called to pursue God. You remember how he ends Ecclesiastes? He said, hear the conclusion of the entire matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. He had the ability to pursue anything he did. And in the end, he said, you want the conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God and keep his commandments. Thou shall have no other God beside me. Let me conclude with just two thoughts. The first is I need to step back and ask myself, not if there are idols in my life, but if there are idols now. Because we are idol factories. We pursue God and then we just get a little bit cold about God and we pursue other things. Are you, I, or any of us pursuing idols Today? It could be the false god of Bacchus or Dionysus. That's really the god of the vine and wine. That's when we're addicted to substances. And I know how this goes. I've, I've had it so many times in my office, in my life, where someone has come in and, and they're clearly in need, in real need of intervention but you suggest they an intervention need and they get angry. Rather than looking at themselves, they guard their idol. Maybe some of us have the idolatry idol of Bacchus and Dionysus, and we need real help to put the Lord back on the throne. Maybe for others, it's mammon. That's the pursuing of materialism and wealth, and we're just never satisfied. We go from toy to toy to toy to toy, and... And we're never quite satisfied. For others, it might be the goddess Venus. She is worshipped all over this land. God of sexual intimacy and beauty. Often illicit sexual intimacy. She's worshipped all over. There's the God of narcissism. Me, myself, and I. There was an, a man named Bellum. Probably many of you have read this. If you've read any sociology or philosophy, and Bellum was a professor of religion at the University of California in Berkeley. And he used to have a little publication that he would record when he would go out in the streets and kind of ask people questions, record it, and then he would publish it. And he came across a woman named Sheila. And uh, in the service just prior to this, we had a PhD in psychology. And as soon as I said Sheila, he mouthed the rest of it. He knew exactly where I was going. Well, Bellum asked Sheila, What does she believe? And she said, You know, I have a deep faith in God. I can't remember the last time I was in church. Well, I'm not a fanatic, you know. Actually, I worship Sheilaism that's narcissism, that's going after ourselves. But the Bible tells us to go after God, to pursue God, to love God, to guard our hearts. And so I've got to constantly ask myself, what idolatry am I allowing? What is more important in my life than God? And what corrective steps do I need to take? The last thing I would notice from the text is the exclusive nature of the gospel. You shall have no other God beside me. The gospel is utterly exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through Allah, not through Buddha, not through good works. It's only through a faith in Jesus Christ. That's the exclusive nature of the gospel. Yet, it's incredibly inclusive. Unbelievably inclusive. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Revelation chapter five says that God has claimed for himself people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Every ethnos, we don't even know how many there are. People argue, are there 18,000 people groups, 16,000 people? We have no idea. People divided by custom and and barriers and language, geography. We may have 18,000 people groups on the planet today, and God has claimed for himself a remnant from every one of them. So the gospel is exclusive It's only through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's unbelievably inclusive. It's offered to all of us. Can you think of anything on this planet that is that inclusive? We can't get along about anything. But Jesus says, I've got a remnant from every tribe and tongue, people and nation, every ethness. I claim people. I look at the text And I would like to walk away with two things. First, we need to make sure that we know Jesus Christ, as personal Savior. Know that you and I are sinners in need of a Savior. Sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity. Anything outside the will of God is sin. Jesus paid the penalty of sin, which is death. The God-man died for us, was buried, and then conquered death. Paul calls it the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. And he offers salvation to all who receive it. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Don't leave today without knowing for certain that you have believed in Jesus as Savior. And for those of us who have accepted Christ it behooves us, not just once, but on a regular basis to do some evaluation. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. 9. Lord, help me to reveal the idols in my life so that you are rightly the one I pursue above all else. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we do desperately need to pursue you. While well, you have a you are the uncaused cause and there is nothing you need outside your being. You desire, rightly so, our worship. And you command our worship. And we do not share your aseity. We are so desperate for you, so dependent upon you. Reveal idols in our life. Father, if some do not know your Son as Savior, may today be the day of salvation. And for those who already know you, may we examine, illuminated by your Spirit, our lives to see those areas that we have placed ourselves above you. May we pursue you. Above all else, in the name of Christ we pray, amen.